What's up, everybody? How we doing? Good. My name is Mikey Stewart, if we haven't met. Excited to be with you tonight. Do the same thing we do every week, which is preach the word and then live out the word from that. Um, do any of you guys know what this is? Well, there's a soccer ball on it. It's a trophy. Can we read it? This is the trophy for the golden boot of the Veritas Premier League season one. Anybody in the Veritas Premier League? The little soccer league we have going on? Okay, well, this means that I won. That's right. This means I scored more goals than anybody in the whole league, which means I scored more, more goals than Ryan, okay? Ryan is not here tonight. He can't defend himself. He actually calls himself a good soccer player. He like talks about it all the time. He's like, yeah, I'm like so good at soccer. I'm so good at soccer, all this stuff. So I said, all right, we'll see about that. So I join the Veritas Premier League with him. I own this trophy, not him. I scored more goals than him. He's not happy about it. You should ask him about it sometimes. But uh, going through the process of earning that trophy makes the trophy way more meaningful to me than it does to you, right? Like I lifted that little trophy up. It's pretty dumb. And uh, you're like, I don't really care about that trophy. I care a lot about it because when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, I beat Ryan. I'm better than Ryan at soccer, okay? So going through the process of earning that trophy made the end product that much sweeter, if you will. Okay, tonight we're going to be looking at my favorite story in the whole Bible, and I'm hoping that you walk away tonight with a greater appreciation and a greater awe for Jesus for who he is and for what he's done with you, okay? In the same way that, uh, you know, after learning about the story of my dumb little trophy there, you might see why it means more to me. I'm hoping that in explaining this story of Jesus, you guys walk away with a greater appreciation for him. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and start turning to John chapter 21. This is, by the way, our last uh, week in our Jesus series. Next week, we're starting a series in Psalms. So this is our last week in our Jesus series. And tonight, John chapter 21 is all about the story of the restoration of Peter after he denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus predicted that he would. And so with that story, we're going to be answering the question. If you're taking notes, the title of tonight is, What Happens When We Sin? Okay? What happens when we sin? Because there's a problem we got to figure out, all right? So many of you guys have been coming to Salt for a long time. You've been a Christian for quite a while. Maybe some of you, not so long. But still, uh, for most of us in the room, we are pretty familiar with the benefits of the gospel. Namely, what I'm talking about is like the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a purpose and meaning for your life. If you ask pretty much anybody on the street, hey, what are the benefits of Christianity? They'd probably be able to answer those things, okay? So we know those. And that we're very familiar with them. And that's good that we're familiar with them because they're amazing benefits. Those are a great reason to put your faith in Christ. But there's a problem that comes along with that. And it's the fact that we continually struggle with sin. It's frustrating, right? Even though we believe in Jesus, we've given our lives to him, and we would say we're dead to sin and alive to Christ, why do we still struggle with sin? Okay, this 
week in my Bible, I was reading through uh, the, the book of Romans, came across Romans 7. This is kind of a famous passage. I, I picked a few verses here. It'll be on the screen. It says this. This is Paul talking. He says, For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Anyone else feel like they're kind of in the same boat? We struggle with sin. It ticks us off. We're fed up with it. We hate this reality about ourselves that we want to do what's right, but we can't. We know we shouldn't do what's wrong, but we do it. Okay, we always end up failing. We know, here's uh, going back to that familiarity thing. We know forgiveness is on the other side. We know heaven awaits us at the end of our lives. But here's the question we're tackling tonight. What is the process? What actually happens when we sin? I'm asking the question, how does Jesus think about us? Does he get mad? Does he give us a silent treatment? Does he want us to feel bad? Does he want us to not feel bad? Does he want us to do something? Okay, that's what we're tackling tonight. What actually happens when we sin? So a little backstory to get you caught up before we get into point number one. We're picking up actually conveniently right where Ryan left off after Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And Peter, our main character of the evening, a very bold man, remember how he's like, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus is like, fine, then you have no part in me. And then he's like, fine, do my hands and my head too. Okay, so clearly we've got a pretty crazy guy on our hands tonight. And Jesus, then after he uh, washes his disciples' feet, predicts the uh, betrayal of Judas, and he predicts the denial of Peter. Okay, if you guys aren't familiar with these stories, you should look them up on your own time. But in John 13, Jesus is predicting the denial of Peter. He says, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Okay? So he predicts the, the denial of Peter. So then, as the story would progress, Jesus uh, leaves from that room. He goes and prays by himself in the garden. His disciples fall asleep. He's asking his father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, please let it pass. If not, your will be done. Then it's time. He's uh, done praying in the garden. Time to get betrayed into the hands of sinful men. So Judas and his posse of punks show up. They arrest him. Peter, main character, pulls out a sword. He's like, gets so angry that they're arresting Jesus. Pulls out a sword, cuts off one of the guy's ears who's trying to uh, arrest Jesus. Apparently, it was in like one piece or something. Jesus, I don't know, picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy, heals him. Pretty strange. But they eventually take Jesus, move him into the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, and so here's where our story gets a little more complex. So then John, the beloved disciple John, friend of Peter, is with Peter. They're following Jesus, watching him get taken in this courtyard. Uh, John is familiar with the people who are like overseeing this courtyard. So he just walks in because he knows the people. And then there's like uh, a servant girl who's a doorkeeper. And uh, she says, 
you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? To Peter, because she knows that John is a disciple. So Peter's walking in. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Really nonchalantly, Peter says, I'm not. All right, strike one. Don't know if he even realized what he did, but strike one right there. He denies his Lord. I don't know him. It's actually in chapter 18, verse 18. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire. I want you to actually circle that or underline that. We're going to come back to that later. They'd made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. Okay? So then the story cuts from Peter warming himself by a charcoal fire with his friends around the comforts of a warm fire. Cuts to Jesus Christ, who is not warm with his friends. He's alone. He's cold. He's being interrogated, and he's being perfectly faithful to his Father in heaven. They're interrogating him. Are you the son of man? And he denies nothing. Okay, I want you to see the contrast here between Jesus and Peter. Jesus denies nothing. They slap him. They ridicule him. And then the story flashes back to Peter. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him again, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Okay, so imagine this. You are working with your cousin. It said a relative of the man, right? So you're working with your cousin. You get a job that night. Hey, we got to go arrest this guy named Jesus. It's causing a lot of problems. So you're like, all right, whatever. You and your cousin walk up. There he is. Your cousin doing his job. I'm going to go grab this man. This crazy dude comes out, probably screaming with a sword, cuts your cousin's ear off. I, again, I'm thinking, how did he just cut off his ear? Was it like one of the, was it like bottom to top action? Was it top to bottom? Was it like matrix action where he's turned? I don't know. Only the ear gets cut off. Here's what I'm saying. If you watch your cousin get his ear cut off by some crazy dude, wouldn't you remember what the crazy dude looked like? So he's standing there around this fire, and the guy's like, he like looks at him, he's like, I think you're the guy who like cut off my cousin's ear. He's like, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Pretty obvious giveaway. Verse 27, Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. Strike three. End of story. Okay, John ends it like this. Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. The other three gospels would say that Peter started weeping. One of them says that uh, Jesus and Peter made eye contact and then Peter runs out and he's weeping and he feels grieved over his sin. Not John. John wants you to feel the abrupt ending to this. The coldness. He failed. The prophecy was fulfilled. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Jesus is like, Will you really? Apparently not. Peter is us. You and I, were Peter. We are Peter. How many times have we done this exact same thing? Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll throw away my computer if I do that one more time. We go home. You commit the same sin. You do the thing you said you were never going to do. It sucks, right? 
It's a terrible feeling, feeling like a phony. Like you commit to the Lord and you have this intimate conversation with him and then you fail. You've sinned. Join the club, all right? We're all there. We are Peter tonight, you and me. And here's where the good news comes, all right? Point number one, what happens when we sin? Jesus pays the price. We're going there. Point number one, Jesus pays the price. You're probably pretty familiar with the rest of the story. We talk about it every week. Jesus is handed over to Pilate, the governor, who then ends up handing him over to the hands of sinful men to be crucified. Not because Jesus was guilty, but because Pilate feared the approval of men and he wanted to do what they wanted as they shouted, crucify him. So then God, who's come in the flesh, is suffering a sinner's death. He feels more pain than you and I could ever imagine. He's separated from his father. He's thirsty. He's cold. He's alone. He's in pain. He takes his last breath. He dies. They break his legs on the cross. They pierce him with a spear and they bury him. Why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? Because of sin, and not his own sin. He was paying the price for the sins of the world, and the reason is because sin needs to be atoned for, okay? When an injustice or some sort of sin is committed against us, we feel like someone should pay. That's actually a very real and helpful feeling that's saying, something needs to happen when sin is committed. It's a good thing when we long for justice like that. And Jesus knew that we'd never be able to pay the price, so he just takes it upon himself. All right, he substituted himself on the cross. He took our bill that we owed, and he paid it himself. And we get pretty numb to this idea. This sermon this evening, I hope that you kind of realize where we're too familiar with Jesus. One of the things we're too familiar with is this idea of him paying the price for everything we owe. Okay, if I got like a $20 parking ticket, you would know. If I got one today, you would know. You'd see it on my face. I'd be like probably grumpy. You're like, what's your problem? I got a $20 parking ticket, right? Those suck. Those guys are crazy. You leave for two minutes, they get you. But I'm serious. And by the way, if you're a freshman, don't park your moped in a place that's not marked moped parking, you'll get a ticket, okay? If, if I got a ticket, I'd be really upset. But if some stranger walked up and he sees me just like pouting there, maybe I'm crying or something, <laughs> you know, I'm like reading it. <laughs> and he's like, hey, give me that. I'm like, why do you want this? He's like, I want to pay it for you. I'd be like, you would do that for me? I mean, I'd probably just start crying even more than I already was. Okay, imagine that's my dumb $20 parking ticket. Imagine... Somebody does that with, maybe you've had uh, a stranger pay for your dinner, right? Like he sees you having fun with your friends. Some dude pays for your dinner. Maybe your parents surprise you by paying for your school or giving you a car. Some sort of massive debt that you owe, somebody pays the price for you. You'll remember that for a long time, okay? And you'll be grateful for that action of monetary, a monetary debt being paid off. You'll remember that for a long time. We often forget that the sins that we've committed today earn us a spot in hell where we ought to suffer forever because we've, uh, we've sinned in the face of a holy and perfect God. We forget that, okay? But Jesus actually took our place and paid our debt so that we don't have to 
owe that debt anymore. Okay, don't let that fact become yesterday's boring news. We need a renewed appreciation for our forgiven debts that we owed as Jesus paid it all. If you're struggling tonight, if your love is growing cold for Jesus, maybe what you need is a gratefulness and a thankfulness tune-up. Okay? What happens when we sin? First things first, Jesus pays the price. Second thing, Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us where we are. This is where we're going to be in uh, chapter 21. This is our biggest chunk of text. I'm going to go through it kind of slowly. First sentence, after this, so after he had risen from uh, the grave, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. You might have a little footnote that says, or the Sea of Galilee, okay? Same sea. The Sea of Galilee is where Jesus first called his disciples by miraculously Remember that story where he basically is like, cast your net on that side and tons of fish start rushing into the nets and so many fish that their nets started tearing. They're like, who is this? That's when they end up meeting Jesus on this sea, okay? It's the same place, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you probably could have seen the Sea of Galilee where Jesus probably gave the Sermon on the Mount. This is the same sea where Jesus walked on water, where he called Peter and Peter walked on water, where he calmed the sea, So this place is loaded with memories of Jesus for Peter. Okay, so we're moving on. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Similarly to another night, they were out fishing all night, and caught nothing. The next morning, they'd meet a very special person. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the nets on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Okay, again, the deja vu that Peter's probably experiencing right now is probably through the roof. And you have to wonder, how do all of these remembrances of Jesus make him feel? Are they, like, let's be honest, are they haunting his heart? Is he continually being reminded of his best friend, his savior, who he denied three times, and then he ended up, watch, be murdered Jesus has appeared to him twice at this point. He's appeared to his disciples two times before this, but there's no specific mention of him like restoring Peter or addressing what Peter did or anything. So Peter's probably still wondering, feeling the weight of his sin, wondering, what is Jesus going to think about me? I betrayed him. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Okay? Charcoal fire. Last time he was around charcoal fire... He denied his Lord three times. Fish and bread. 
the meal of choice for Jesus, right? How many times had Peter picked up baskets full of the stuff that Jesus made appear out of thin air after he fed the 5,000, after he fed the 4,000? Can you imagine what he's feeling, what he's thinking? He's supposed to be one of Jesus' best friends, his most passionate supporter, and ended up accidentally becoming his traitor. Now he's face-to-face with them. What's Jesus going to say to him? Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. So right before he's about to die, he's serving his friends by washing their feet. He gets betrayed by his best friends, ends up dying, rises again, still serving his friends, cooks some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Okay, this is another thing. I want you to not think, how could they not think that it was Jesus? All right, well, duh, he rose from the grave. Because we get really familiar with the idea of a risen Jesus. All right, this would have been very fresh to them, probably very spooky almost, like, is this really him? That's what they're asking. Is this really you? They know it's him, but they dare not ask him. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish, and this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus pays the price, and then he meets you where you are. He moves towards us, And when he moves towards you, that means you also have a responsibility to move towards him. All right? Peter jumps out of the boat. I don't know why. They're like 100 yards away, jumps out of the boat. I'm assuming he just wanted to get to Jesus as fast as he could. He has to get to the only place of healing that he can think of, and that's in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus finds you, You do have a responsibility to move towards him. But one thing that I'll warn you is that when you do move close to him, things might get a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus is not just in the the business of making you feel good, all right? There might be some pretty painful stuff to deal with before you end up getting better. What I mean is like Jesus comes up to the shore, sees the fire, sees the bread, sees the fish, remembering what he did. I'm wondering, honestly, if Jesus was just kind of poking him a little bit, like, hey, we still got to go over this. I still want to talk to you about something. But it ends up being great for him because what he wants to do is he wants to sanctify him. When Jesus makes you a little uncomfortable because you have sin, it's because he wants to sanctify you to make you more holy and make you more like himself, which doesn't always feel great. Okay? We have to deal with the fact that we don't have it all together and we need help. So after he pays the price, after he comes to you and you end up meeting him, what's next? Number three, Jesus forgives us. He forgives us. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. What this is, what we just read there, is an account of full forgiveness, full restoration. He's communicating that he forgives Peter for what he did. The slate is clean, okay? Maybe tonight you need to hear me say to you that Jesus Christ is willing to forgive you for your sins. He wants to forgive you, to make you new, to wipe the slate clean, to cover it in blood. And a few practical notes about this, just that we learned from Peter is, there's no prerequisite to receiving forgiveness besides just knowing who Jesus is and confessing that you're a sinner, all right? Peter doesn't say a magic prayer. He doesn't do anything spectacular. He just acknowledges his sin, which is obvious that he feels it as he's grieved over it. And that's the second thing is, Peter was grieved over his sin, as he should have been, okay? Grief is not a bad thing. Grief is the product, it's the result of your conscience being defiled, of your heart knowing that you haven't done everything as you ought to and that something is wrong. Okay, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So what that means is, Your sin should lead you to feel some grief because it has a purpose to lead you to holiness and salvation. That's the purpose of grief. Now, there's two other kind of like responses or, or things that happen. One is that consequences are a natural result of sin, okay? That's different from grief. If I rob a bank... I should be forgiven of that, but I should also be fired from my job, okay? If I rob a bank at natural consequences, I'm gonna lose my job because I shouldn't do that. (laughs) Consequences are a natural result. Guilt, however, has no place in the life of a Christian, okay? So we got grief, consequences. Guilt has no place. I'm not talking about feeling guilty That's probably just better described as grief. I'm talking about being guilty. If you are in the blood of Jesus Christ, if you are in relationship with him, then he has taken away the guilt. He's taken away your guiltiness and there is now no condemnation for you. Okay, so guilt and condemnation are not okay. Consequences might happen. They might not actually disappear just because you know Jesus. But grieving over sin is is a proper response because of what Jesus went through in order to remove that guilt from you. You guys follow me? So here's the application for this point. I want you to stop paying penance for your sins. Stop paying penance. What Jesus wants from you is repentance and not penance. Penance is doing actions to help you feel like you're paying back part of this debt that you once owed. Okay, so an example would be like if you stand and you're like, I'm going to fast for the next two days because then God will know that I'm really serious and maybe then I'll be a little more worthy of what Jesus did for me. Okay? 
Or maybe you're like, I'm going to pray this certain prayer uh, 50 times over. Or I'm going to pray for that thing that I did. I'm going to pray for it for a week straight. That's called penance. That's not what the gospel offers you. Jesus doesn't want you to try and earn back your righteousness. Peter didn't do anything to earn Jesus' approval. He just comes to him. Jesus offers it. You only need to accept it. And once you've confessed your sin, once you've come face to face with it, stop asking for forgiveness for sins that Jesus has already forgiven you of, okay? Stop asking for forgiveness of sins you committed back in high school. If you've confessed it, Jesus has forgiven you. You have the freedom to move on, okay? No more penance, only repentance, meaning that you leave it there and you turn away from the sin and you follow Jesus. That's what he wants, repentance. Last thing is, what happens when we sin? Jesus invites us to follow him. There's an invitation. Jesus invites us to follow him. Truly I tell you, he's talking to Peter, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Okay, after this, Peter and Jesus end up going on a walk. John's following close behind. For whatever reason, Peter's like, hey, Lord, what about him? Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. He gives him the same invitation. As for you, follow me. So Jesus not only pays the price, meets you where you are and forgives you, but then he invites you into living the best life you could ever live. Jesus is the best friend you could ever ask. He's the best leader you could ever ask for. And you never know where he's going to take you. That's part of the fun. For Peter, Jesus never actually lived in Peter's expectations. He kind of always lived outside of them, around them. He was always outside of Peter's expectations. Peter didn't want a Lord who, who humiliates himself by washing his nasty feet. He's like, no, Lord, that's humiliating. Jesus is like, no, you, you don't get it. This is, this is who I am. Peter didn't want a crucified and humiliated Lord. He's like, not you. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's like, you're not thinking about things the way you ought to. Okay, so not only was Jesus not what Peter expected, but Peter's life also ended up turning out differently than he expected too. Okay, as Jesus is prophesying, you're going to die for me. I'm sure this random fisherman that Jesus called had no idea the way his life would end up turning out. Jesus will surprise you. He will take you to places you never expected. But the question is, will you follow him there? Will you follow him wherever he wants to lead you? Word of advice, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to commit to this for the rest of your life, you better start developing a high tolerance for mystery in your life. Get used to mystery. Get used to things not making sense. Lots of stuff that Jesus is going to ask of you is going to be confusing, won't make sense, but in the end, I promise you, it will be worth it, even if it leads to death like it did for Peter. Okay, so your application for this is to live in freedom, live in the forgiveness he's offering you, and then just obey him. Go where he's leading you. Do what he's asking you. Obey his commands and stop living in guilt and go where he's taking you. I don't know what it is. You're gonna, this is something that'd be great for you to flesh out in your connection groups, just by yourself in your quiet time. What's he asking you to do? Share the gospel. 
with your, your roommates in your dorm? Share the gospel with somebody overseas this summer with Salt Company? Change your major? Commit to a spiritual discipline? I don't know. That's going to be for you and the Lord to figure out. But figure it out and follow him while you live in the freedom as he ultimately leads you to heaven with himself. Salt Company, we are in a battle with evil. Both evil outside of us and inside of us. Often it gets the best of us. When it does, when we sin, what do we do? What happens? We know that Jesus paid the price for those sins. That he is pursuing you. That he wants to offer you full forgiveness and invites you into a wonderful life and adventure of following him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I uh, often think that when we open up your word, you want to challenge us and, and uh, lead us to places where you want us to go. You want to direct us. But Lord, tonight I think you want to beckon us in with your gentleness. And I pray that uh, the gentleness and compassion of Jesus would be very evident and obvious tonight as we worship you, as we continue to think about you. Lord, what a great story of how you restored Peter fully. I mean, he messed up bad. He was so confident he would never leave your side, yet he denied you three times, just like you said, and you were so patient with him, gentle with him, compassionate with him, and you're the same with us, Lord. I pray that that would be obvious to us, that we would be drawn in by your friendship, by your service, as you're telling them, come have breakfast, and you just... Cook them a meal, patient with them, Lord. I pray that there is grace, that there's space at the foot of the cross tonight for people who've never put their faith in you to make that decision tonight. Lord, would you send us out of here with a greater appreciation and awe for who you are as we realize how you deal with our sin. Be gracious to us, Lord. We need you. We pray all these things in your name.